Everyone, good morning. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. Uh, my name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to see y'all here this morning. Uh, great to have uh, uh, this time together to be able to worship, to uh, meet new people, to spend time together. Uh, if you are a guest, whether it's your first time or your first time in a long time, you just happen to be visiting in town, I'd love to say hi to you at the end of the service. So I'm going to be in the back under the exit sign. Come say hi. I'd love to hear your name, a little bit more about your story and uh, how you ended up in Chatham County this particular Sunday or maybe permanently or for the near future and what your experience was like this morning. When I was in college, I was part of a team of people that organized and led conferences and retreats for fellow students from all across the island of Puerto Rico, which is where I was born and raised. And, you know, when it comes to students, a high priority in planning anything for students is to try to keep the cost down. Uh, because students, college students, are not known for their abundance of financial resources. But, you know, looking for places to host college students and trying to keep the cost down meant that we would end up in some really, really, really out-of-the-way places. Uh, one time, the retreat center that we booked was sort of up on the top or near the top of a mountain up in the, east, uh, the west coast of the island, and uh, we were planning this retreat in an era before smartphones were readily available. So we knew it would be a challenge to get up there. People didn't have Google Maps. I'm not sure if MapQuest was a thing, for those of you who remember, that far back. And I'm not sure many of us had Magellans or whatever, Garmins, whatever they were called, uh, to, to guide us up there. So we made sure to send out maps and written directions for people to have for the participants, as many as we had access to. And so early on in the retreat day, uh, those of us who were leaders went up there so we could set up the place and we used the directions. And we realized once we got up there, first of all, this was a trek, far, far more of a trek than we had first realized. And uh, we realized that the directions and the maps were just not going to be enough for some people. Because as we made our way up there, there were road closures, there were detours, there were signs that were hidden behind trees and branches, and this was just a recipe for people to get lost. Many of uh, the people who were coming had never been up this way before, and many would be coming early in the evening. Now, I was pretty good at uh, recognizing landmarks and sort of remembering landmarks. I have a pr pretty good visual memory. So I was assigned to be one of the people who would serve as a guide when inevitably people would start calling, telling us that they were lost or they weren't sure that they were on the right path, or they weren't sure where they were at all, or whether they were going to get there. Even though every one of the people who were driving up had maps, even though they had directions, right, we printed, we sent them to them, uh, having a guide on the phone as they made their way up and through unfamiliar territory, new ground, helped them. I would calm them down if they were anxious, uh, I would uh, help them find their bearings. I would say, look around. Tell me what you see. That's how accurate of a memory I had back then. I don't know what's happened in the years since, but back then, that's how accurate of a memory I had. And I was able to help them locate themselves and then tell them more or less how far they had to go. Oftentimes, it was just as simple as saying, you're on the right track. Just keep going. And oftentimes, it would be a little bit more complicated. I'd be like, Oh, you're way off. you got to turn around, probably drive three miles before you get, or in our case, it would be kilometers in Puerto Rico, until you get to the turnoff, right? But it was helpful to get them on the right track. And for the rest of the school year, for the rest of that school year, and even in the years after, as I was still in college, I would catch some of those students telling the story of that drive up. 
telling the story of what happened as they made their way. There was something memorable about going through unfamiliar territory to get to the place where they needed to to be. It stuck in their minds. Uh, During the summer, oh, I had a picture of it. That's what I looked like, giving the directions. (laughs) For those of you who can remember that far back, that is the unbreakable phone, the old Nokia, uh, which uh, could use as a, I mean, that could crack anything. Anyway, uh, they don't make them like they used to. Ooh, that sounded old. Never mind. <laughs> During the summer, we're going to spend our time uh, in a series that we've titled Signature Moments. And what we're doing in the Signature Moments series is we're making our way through scriptures and stopping at different points to read key moments in the lives of women and men as the ancient scriptures tell to us. These are the moments in their lives that had significant impact. They were significant moments of transformation for them, for the people they were with, some instances, for the people they led. All of those moments shaped their lives and legacies. Some of them came in unexpected moments. Some of them were sought out, but they all had a meaningful impact. And our hope as we are going through this series is that some of us will see ourselves, in fact, that all of us will see ourselves in at least some of the characters that we encounter as we navigate through Scripture. Maybe we'll recognize some of the signature moments we've already had, or maybe we'll get a sense of longing for the signature moments that are to come, the kinds of moments that will transform our lives and shape our legacies. And here's the thing about signature moments. Sometimes signature moments come when we step into unfamiliar territory when we happen to find ourselves in places or in situations that we hadn't been in before, where we need to figure out a way through. And sometimes we can make our way through on our own, and that's a signature moment. They can happen as we figure our way through new territory, but they can also happen when we let ourselves be guided by those that know the way. When we find ourselves in unfamiliar territory, the signature moments can happen in two ways, either by us figuring it out on our own, but sometimes, sometimes they happen when we trust and let ourselves be guided by those that know the way. And in the story we're going to look at in Scripture today, it's the latter case, people letting themselves be guided by someone who knows the way. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 3. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the Bible or maybe don't know where Joshua is, Joshua is the sixth book of the Old Testament. So you just If you start at the beginning, just start paging your way through. You'll pass Genesis, you'll pass Exodus, you'll pass Leviticus, you'll pass Numbers, you'll pass Deuteronomy. If you get to Psalms, you've gone too far. Turn back a little bit. And you find in Joshua, we'll be in chapter 3. We're going to read starting in verse 1. And uh, I will read that for us in just a second. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen so you can follow along. Here we go. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your position and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today 
I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. And the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap, a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. The people of Israel had been wandering in the desert for an entire generation. Moses had led them out of years of slavery in Egypt. And there's a land that's been promised to them, a land that they can call home, and the time is drawing near to come to be in that land. The time is drawing near for them to come home. But by this point in the story, Moses has departed. Moses is no longer with them, and Joshua is now their leader. And they find themselves at the banks, near the banks of the River Jordan. And at this point, they are in uncharted territory. They've never been this way before. And while there, they hear, they are told, then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. They are told that there is something, something that they will be able to rely on, something that will will show them the way, even though they've never been this way before. Now, they've been in unfamiliar situations in the past, and they've had to choose what to rely on in the midst of unfamiliar situations and uncharted territory. They found themselves in challenging circumstances, and in those moments, they've made decisions about what to rely on. There are times where they've relied on reimagining what their past was like under Egyptian oppression. And they've convinced themselves that it wasn't really that bad. In fact, that familiar, horrible situation was probably better than whatever was going ahead. They've relied on that. They've tried to rely on power. And they've schemed to replace their leaders. Maybe they'd get a leader who wouldn't be leading them into new territory. They've at other times tried to rely on some other spiritual power rather than the power of God. Maybe one that would be easier to convince, easier to manipulate. Maybe one that they could have a more transactional relationship with. They've relied on many other things. And none of those things could reliably show them the way to the life that they were called to live the life that they were made to live, 
Though they relied on all those things, none of them were reliable enough to lead them to the life they were made for. In this instance, they are told to follow the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And by saying that, what they're being told is that they are in this instance to rely on God's presence and God's promise. They are told to rely on God's presence with them and God's promises to them because that's what the ark was. The ark was a visible, constant reminder that God's presence was with them. And even that word, covenant, that covenant word communicates promise, agreement. So even being told, follow the ark of the covenant, they're being told, follow the presence of God and follow the promises of God. God has made promises to them, and they are told, rely on that. And because they choose to follow that, as they find themselves in unfamiliar territory this time, they get a signature moment. They get a signature moment. Uh, Star Wars over the last few years has sort of popped back into common parlance, mostly because they've been putting on TV shows at a rapid pace. And as I've been catching up with those, every once in a while when I have a spare 20, 25 minutes, I look back on some of the shows that I missed over the years, particularly one called Clone Wars. And I'm sort of slowly making my way through that show. I didn't watch it when it first premiered because it's primarily geared towards a younger audience. But like many things that are geared towards younger audience, and many quality things that may be geared towards younger audience, there's good stuff in there for uh, all of us. And I was watching an episode the other day that focused on uh, what are known as clone troops. Just think of it as a troop of soldiers. And uh, in the episode, these troops, this troop in particular, is going through a testing process so that they can go from trainees to actually being in the field. And they're in their final test. And there's like five or six of them. And over and over again, they fail. They have to complete a simulation. And over and over again, they fail. And they fail because they rely on the wrong things. There's one of them that relies on his brute force and aggression. And so, uh, sort of inevitably, at some point in the simulation, he charges ahead, breaks cover, and tries to plow his way through the simulation robots, and he fails. There's another one that consistently relies on the orders, what the instructions are. He's continually reminding, these are the orders, these are the instructions, this is what we're supposed to do. But any person who knows anything about military tactics knows that no plan survives first contact with battle. And then there's two others who rely on what they believe is their own superiority. And so they consistently try to pair up together and see if they can get to the end maybe leave these other stragglers behind because they're not as good. But over and over again, they fail. And they keep failing this final exam. And they're told that they have one more chance. One more chance. And they know that if they don't pass this test, if they don't pass the simulation, their career is over. Uh, they, will be, what was it? they will be resigned to being the cleanup crew in the training facility. And so they come together and they're finally like, all right, you know, we need to rely on each other. We need to figure out how to do this as a squad. And so they go into this simulation. But see, the, 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 the proctors, the people who are managing the test, know that they've seen the simulation before. So this time they decide, all right, we're going to change things up in the simulation. And so in the middle of the simulation that they've been through before, they find themselves in uncharted territory. Different circumstances, different ways of engaging them are coming at them. 
And you almost think, oh, they're going to break. They've never worked together before. They're surely not going to be able to work together now. And you can see that the guy who's uh, sort of an aggressive charger is almost ready to charge out. But they catch themselves. They know they can't keep relying on the things they've relied on in the past to get through this. And so they come together. And together, they make their way. They talk through. They replan. They re-strategize. And they all make it. They all make it to the goal. And they all get promoted. They made a different choice of what to rely on. They succeed. It makes a difference. There are so many things that we could choose to rely on when we find ourselves in uncharted territory. In fact, there are things that we could choose to rely on at any moment in life, but especially when we're charting through places we've never been before. Maybe some of us sort of relate to the people in, to the characters in the show. Maybe some of us, it's brute force. Charge ahead. We're kind of those charge first kind of people. We rely on that. Some of us maybe rely on our charisma. Some of us may choose to rely on our own strength, our own smarts, our own knowledge, our own ambition, our power. Some of us rely on control. Some of us may even rely on relationships and networking we've done to help us get through uncharted territory, help us make it through unfamiliar ground. And let me tell you, some of those are helpful sometimes. They are helpful. But there is something that's not just helpful. It's always reliable. And that makes all the difference. God's presence and God's promises are always reliable guides when we need to find the way forward. In fact, I even, I'd even go, go as far as saying that God's presence and God's promise serve as reliable guides to let us know which one of the things we bring with us we need to tap into in those moments. Whether it's time to tap into strength, whether it's time to tap into our smarts, whether it's time to tap into our relationships, but it starts with God's presence and God's promise. They are always reliable. Even in the most disorienting moments, if you seek out God's presence, you will inevitably gain your bearings. You may not immediately know where you need to head, but you'll know where you are. And you'll know who is with you. And that will make the difference. And whatever, whatever you truly need to get through it, whatever you truly need to make it through the unfamiliar situation, to make it through the uncharted territory, to find the way forward, God has promised to provide it. God has promised so many things. There's peace that's promised. And you'll get it if that's what you need to make it through uncharted territory. There's joy that's promised. And you'll get it if that's what you need to make it through the uncharted territory. There's strength that's promised. There is wisdom that is promised. There is guidance that is promised. There are the gifts of the Spirit that are promised. God has promised to give us what we need. And so we look to Him. We rely on His promises. We rely on His presence. What if relying primarily on God's promise and God's presence as we move forward in unfamiliar territory is the key to unlocking our next signature moment? Think of where you are right now. Are you in uncharted territory? Do you foresee some unfamiliar ground? What would it look like for you to face that by looking to God's presence and by trusting in his promises? That's what does it for the people in the passage. It sets them up for their signature moment. 
that may set us up for hours. After being told that they are to follow the ark, Joshua tells the people, consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. What he's inviting them to do is to set aside some time for some sort of preparation. And that preparation is connected to how they relate to God. He's inviting them to set aside some concentrated time to dedicate themselves, to focus so that they can be ready for what's going to happen the next day. Consecration has uh, traditionally been thought of as a period of time. There's not a set period of time. It's just a period of time. Period of time during which we set aside moments or times in our day to connect with God in ways that are outside or in addition to our routine ways. And they usually lead up to something. We usually do it in the lead up to something. Consecration is not necessarily something we do every day. It's something we do with a purpose. And when we consecrate ourselves, what we're doing is preparing in anticipation for what God will do. So if there's something that you're anticipating or wanting to anticipate that God will do, perhaps it is time to consecrate ourselves. When we consecrate ourselves, we show that we have a sense of expectancy. We've talked about that sense or that idea of expectancy often here, especially connected to the Holy Spirit. We talk about having expectation without agenda. The belief that God is going to do something without, 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 without uh, telling God what it is that he has to do. We don't dictate what God will do, but we are convinced that God will do something. We don't want to miss it. And that's the key in consecration. It's this idea that we're convinced God is going to do something and we don't want to miss it. So we spend the time focusing our attention on him, focusing so that we are ready, so that we are ready. Some of that looks like prayer. Some things that we can do for consecration are fasting. We can spend some time doing some particular types of readings, some reflecting. We can spend some time in worship. We spend some time serving. For some people, consecrating seasons are seasons where they extend extra generosity. There are lots of ways to consecrate ourselves. It's the ways that connect you to God, and you do them in addition or for longer periods than what you normally do as a way to say, God, whatever it is that you're about to do, I don't want to miss it. I want to be present because that's what consecration gives us. It gives us eyes to see what God is doing. But it does something else too. It also gives us the will to do our part. And we need both. It would be easy for some of us to say, well, I mean, if I saw what God was doing and there was something I needed to do because I'm seeing that that's what God is doing, clearly I would do my part. But I can almost guarantee that if we went around the room, we would collect stories, often tinged with regret, where we recognized the work of God. We knew God was doing something. We sensed a prompting to do our part, and we didn't follow through. We could probably collect stories of phone calls we didn't make, or prayers we didn't pray, or invitations we didn't extend, or changes that we didn't go through with, even though we saw. And that's what consecration does. It adds not just to the sight, it gives us the will to follow through. Now, friends, I know some of those stories are tinged with regret. Mine are tinged with regret, too. There's no condemnation. There's grace and mercy for all of those 
and for so much more. But our lives already tell us that we need more than eyes to see. We need a will to do our part. We need our will to lock in, to buy in. And that's one of the things that consecration grants us. It's one of the things that consecration strengthens. I'm going to say something a little bit more direct. We've talked about consecration probably a handful of times in the last year. And every time we talk about it, I extend an invitation. I say, for some of us, it's a time to consecrate ourselves. And every time we're going to talk about a passage that talks about consecration in our small group questions, I include a question that asks, hey, talk about a time where you consecrated ourselves. And inevitably, I hear stories from small groups who say, no one had a category for this. Again, there's no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. But whether this is the first time you're hearing me talk about consecration or whether this is the fifth time you've heard me talk about consecration, let me say it once again. Perhaps it is time for some of us to take a time of consecration. Perhaps God keeps leading us to passages that talk about it and keeps prompting Alex and I to mention it in our sermons and keeps prompting me to put it in the small group questions because he's ringing a bell for us. It's not a bell of condemnation, it's a bell of invitation. It's God saying, I want you to see it, and I want you to have the will to do it, the will to buy in. Friend, if you've passed up the opportunity in the past, don't pass it up this time. God's got something good for you. And if this is your first time, then be one of those people that says, the first time I heard it, I did it. It's not going to be a star in your cap or anything like that, but you'll get to tell the story. It'll be good. And the Israelites need it. They need not just eyes to see. They need the will to follow through. When the time comes for them to move forward, the ark is moving toward a river that's at flood stage. When every bit of wisdom, every bit of logic would scream, get away, don't go near the river at flood stage, the ark and the people following take steps towards the river. They are convinced that they need to be on the other side. God is leading them this way. So they head towards the river, and they eventually step into it. Friends, here's the thing. Can we get back to the um, presentation? Here's the thing. You don't get near a river at flood stage. You don't get near a river at flood stage unless you believe can part the waters. You believe God can part the waters. That's the first. You don't get near a river at flood stage unless you believe God can part the waters, unless you trust that God will part the waters, and unless you are convinced that God's calling you to be on the other side today. You need all three. You need all three. You need the belief that God can. You need the trust that he will. And you need the conviction that it's time to be on the other side. With those three, you can make it through. The Israelites need all three to make these steps. They've heard the stories of God parting the Red Sea. They've got something in the past that tells them God can do these things. When the first ones step into the water, the water does not evaporate. There's still water in that river when those first steps are taken. It takes a bit for the land to be dry. And at that point, they need trust. 
They need trust after that first step to know that even though there's still water there, God will cease the waters. God will stop them. They need trust that God will do what he said he would do when he said that he would hold up the waters way upstream. And they have a sense of conviction. They are convicted that it's time to come home. It's time to be in the land God has promised to them, that the long-delayed promise is being fulfilled and the time to get to the other side is today. They've got faith, they've got trust, they've got conviction, and so they step ahead. What would be possible if any of those, faith, trust, and conviction, increased in us just a little bit? And what do you need for them to increase in you? I'd like you to imagine faith, trust, and conviction as three dials. They can go from 1 to 10 or 11 if you're a fan of Spinal Tap. They can go up to 100. Whatever range is helpful to you. First assess where they are right now. Let's not be naive. They're not at 100 or at the top for any of us. At least not all of them. Maybe one of them is. But where are they? They've gotten you to this point. Bless the Lord for that. Where could they get you if they increase just a little bit? If any one of them increased just a little bit. And what would it take for your faith to increase? What do you need from God for your trust to increase? What do you need from God for your conviction to increase? God can provide all those things. Would you ask him for them? Would you ask him for them? There's a scene in the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade that I'm particularly fond of. Um, in, Indy is making his way through a particular uh, structure. He, he is trying to get to where he believes the Holy Grail is. And along the way, there are a number of tests and traps for him to get through. Now, he's got some urgency. He has to get to where the Holy Grail is because way back at the start of his trek, or at the start of his sort of navigating through these passages, is his father. And his father's injured. His father's bleeding out. And Indy believes that if he gets the cup of the Holy Grail, if he gets the Holy Grail, whatever's in it can heal his dad. And so he's making his way through the challenges. And he comes to a narrow opening and a huge chasm is set before him. And he sees the entryway on the other side. And he's got to decide how he's going to get across. There's nowhere for him to tie his whip to swing across. There's nothing he can throw across to make his way through. And you hear him, and he says to himself, it's a leap of faith. And his father back there injured says, you must believe, boy. And so Indy closes his eyes, and he takes a step forward, and he drops just a little bit, and he lands on what appears to be solid ground. Even though he couldn't see it, there was a bridge there all along. The bridge had always been there. It had been prepared for whoever would come there and would be willing to take the step from years before. He gets to the grail. He brings it back. His father is healed. When God parted the Red Sea, the people saw the wall form before they stepped forward. They got to see that they would be able to pass before they had to take a step. This time, as they near the waters of the river that's at flood stage, nothing parts. 
I imagine that the water is still flowing. Yet as the priest with the ark takes steps in and more steps and people start to follow through, maybe they notice that the stream is running a little slow, more slowly. Maybe they notice that the water level is starting to decrease. But they, text, they have to keep taking steps. By the time the ark is in the middle, they are on dry ground. God had piled up the waters a great distance away, perhaps a distance far enough that they could not see. Now, they were told it was going to happen, but they only got to see it once they stepped in. Sometimes we'll need to step into the waters before we see the effects of God's work upstream. God is oftentimes working upstream in our lives and in our surroundings, in our communities, in the places that we are at, setting things in motion so that we can make it through. And all he's inviting us to is to take the step. To take the step. Stepping into the water gave them a signature moment because God was at work upstream. We don't always get to see the work in front of us. But oftentimes when we take the step, we end up finding out that God was at work all along, preparing for this moment, inviting us to take a step to trust so that we could see. Now, this signature moment is in the middle of the story. We said this last week. Signature moments are trail markers, not destinations. This is a signature moment in the middle of the story for Joshua. It's a signature moment in the middle of the story for the people. Joshua has consistently shown devotion, commitment to God. He's led people into battle. He stoked the faith of people when other, tried to sow, when other people tried to sow seeds of fear. He stepped into a role that was previously occupied by Moses. These are big sandals to fill. And all of that set him up to prepare the people for this moment. Because he's seen God come through over and over again. And the people exercise faith, trust, and conviction here. And that faith, trust, and conviction that they exercise here sets them up for the signature moment of coming home, of inhabiting the land, of receiving the promise God had given them. This wouldn't be Joshua's last signature moment, and it wouldn't be the last signature moment of the people. But what's true there is true now. The next signature moment always builds on the last. The next signature moment always builds on the last. The steps of faith trust, and conviction we take today are the building blocks for tomorrow's signature moments. So here's what I want you to do. I want to come back again to those three dials, to faith, trust, and conviction. I asked you what it would take to increase any of them. Now I want to invite you to consider what your next step might be. What would be the next step for you to exercise some faith? to exercise some trust, to exercise some conviction. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to open up a space of prayer. I'm going to pray to open that space, and I'm going to give you some time to what in like classic Christian circles they would say is to do business with God. I can't do the business for you. I can't do your business for you. But I know God is here. I know his presence is in this place. And I know his promises are active for each one of us. Be attentive to what the next step sounds like, what it feels like it could be, and commit to doing it. Commit to taking the step. For some of us, it will lead to a signature moment. For some of us, it will be evidence of God's work upstream.
Let me pray. God, in this time of silence, would you speak to us? Would you show us what the invitation to faith, trust, and conviction might be? Come, Holy Spirit.